Let's take our Bibles and let's turn to Psalm 119 as we continue our study through this wonderful psalm um, pointing us to God's Word, to the law of God. And let's turn to Psalm 119. Our text will be verses 41 to 48. And if you are able and willing, would you please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. This is the Word of the Lord. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, this is your word. Would you now meet it with your spirit in our hearts and mold us and make us into the men, women, and children that you've called us to be. Oh, dear Lord, in my weakness, may your strength be made manifest. And would you exalt the name of the living Christ in our midst that we might run to him. For he is our hope and our salvation. In whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. 503 years ago. From January 28th to May 25th. There was a formal deliberative assembly of the Holy Roman Empire called by... Emperor Charles V, in regard to Pope Leo X's um, papal bull is what they were called. It was, um, it was a call against Martin Luther. And it was in regard to 41 supposed errors of Martin Luther's work. 95 theses as well as his other writings. And he was, gonna, he was called to respond to the church. Now Luther had already been excommunicated in January of that same year in 1521. And so now he also faces being an outlaw of the state. The powers of the world of the day aligned against a man and his conscience. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? And yet it wasn't just a man and his conscience. In Luther's own account of these events, he writes this, And this is what happened to me at Worms, where I had no other aid than the Holy Spirit. So yes, a man, but a man not only with his conscience, a man and the Lord with him. A man and the Lord with him. Two questions were asked of Luther. Johann Eck was acting as the spokesman of the emperor. And he said this, he said, Martin Luther, his sacred and invincible majesty with the advice of the states of the empire has summoned you hither that you may reply to the two questions I'm now about to put to you. Do you acknowledge yourself the author of the writings published in your name and which are here before you? And will you consent to retract certain of the doctrines which are therein inculcated? 
So they then read all the titles of the books, and Luther answered, yes, these books are mine. And it was then asked of him again, will you retract the doctrines therein? Luther paused, and then he asked for some time to deliberate for his answer, and asked if he could return the next day. And so there he did. And at that return, there was much said by Luther, but they pushed him to give an answer rather than desiring a discussion of the word or the council's decisions. And so they pushed him, yea or nay, will you recant? And here, of course, then we find those famous words, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, or by evident reason. For I believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's own conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. His conscience was bound by the Word of God. The promise of God had gripped him. The love of Christ had compelled him. The Spirit of God had strengthened him. And even in the midst of Luther's own internal struggles, and he had them, and even in the face of these external pressures and attacks, to Martin Luther, the Word of God was, as he said, like the sun among all lights. The Word of God was his delight. Here in our text, the psalmist continues his own petitions that he'd be reminded of God's love and promise, that he'd trust in the Word of God in the face of those who taunt, that God's truth would be his hope and that it would be on his lips, and that he would find delight in God's commandments. So I want us to look at those petitions of the psalmist that are much like Martin Luther's must have been. Your word I trust. Your truth is my hope, and your commandments are my delight. Let's look first to your word I trust. And I love how the psalmist begins here. I love how he starts this section. Notice how he starts it. He says, And let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. And it shouldn't surprise us, though, as we read that, should it? Shouldn't surprise us that the psalmist connects these two things together, particularly the love of God with his salvation. 
And then not only that, but as well as how he knows that truth according to God's promise. Because none of, none of those things are disconnected one from the other. How does the psalmist, we might ask, how do we know God's steadfast love? Well, for the psalmist, he, he knows of God's steadfast love because he has the promise of God's salvation. For him, for the psalmist, it's been demonstrated over and over and over again in type and in shadow. But for us, we know of God's love because we've seen it demonstrated in Christ Jesus. We stand on this side of the cross where we look back and can see what God has done for those He loves. How do you know God's love? How do you know that God loves you? Because He's provided salvation and life for you. In what may be the very first Bible verse that many, if not most of you, learned, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall never perish but have everlasting life. I know it's one of the first verses we often learn, but it is also one of the most remarkable, isn't it? Or maybe what Don read in our New Testament reading from the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How do we know that God loves us? Because God has demonstrated that love for us. You know, in our Western minds, in our Western culture, we think of love, we even define love often as a mere feeling or maybe a romantic love, sentimental love, something that changes, something that goes up and down, moves back and forth, something, something that we can fall into or fall out of based on how we feel about a person at a particular time and place. But that's not the love of God in the Scripture. See, God's love is demonstrated. It's been demonstrated in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, we're not left to wonder. We're not left to question whether God loves us, whether or not God loves His people. The, the God of all creation, the one who upholds all things by the word of His power, the one who changes times and seasons, the one who raises up kings and the one who brings them low, He, he has demonstrated His love to His people by bringing salvation through His very own Son. Do you see the significance of that? The weight of that? The wonder of that? And, and then no wonder the psalmist can say, then shall I have an answer from the one who taunts me. For I trust in Your Word. Because when you know that, you can stand. You can stand. 
When our trust is in the word of God, when we're convinced of the truth of God's promises, that we're loved by him, that we have all things in Christ Jesus, that he will, that he will one day, and he, and he does even now, presently, he reigns and all things are under his feet. But one day those things will be consummated in glory. When we know that truth and that future for those who belong to Him. I love the way that the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it in question number 26. Or more particularly in the answer to question number 26. Where it says, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to Himself, in ruling and defending us, in restraining and conquering all His and our enemies. Isn't that wonderful? That's what Christ does as King. He's ruling and defending us. He's conquering all His and our enemies. When we trust in the Lord, we have an answer for those who taunt us. We have an answer for those that might make fun of us. You young people, you may stand for the truth and you may get made fun of. And you may be mocked. But you have an answer for the one who mocks. In the previous psalm, and not in our previous section, but in the previous psalm in Psalm 118, it says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. As my helper, I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Triumph. What a great word. Victory. Not won by us, but by another. And when we know that, when we, when we trust His Word, it then frees us to live in a way different than the world around us. It frees us to live and to respond not in a way that taunts back, but actually allows us to love our enemies. And to pray for and to bless those who persecute us. Because why? Because we have all things in Christ Jesus. And we're strengthened in Him to stand. To stand. But not only does it give us the encouragement to stand, uh, to take those arrows of the enemy, but it also gives us the boldness to speak the truth. The psalmist says, And take not the word of truth... <clears throat> Utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. Now, when we read that, what does he mean by taking his words out of his mouth? What he means by that is, is allow me to speak them. Keep them in here so that I can speak them to those who taunt, to those who stand against me. You see, our hope, his hope, our hope, isn't in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Our hope is in the Word of God. And again, not only is it that hope in which we stand, but it's, it's, it's that with which we respond. The Word of God is to be on our lips when we respond. Uh, the psalmist in, says in verse 46, he says, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. God, God protects the integrity of His Word. And yeah, there, there might be, as I said a moment ago, there might be consequences for standing for God's testimonies. But they 
but there will never be shame. There may be consequences, but there will never be shame. And, and it's interesting, and we've learned this already, but just to remind us, this word shame here is not just to be humiliated or to suffer shame or to suffer distress. We, we think of shame in that way, and it's appropriate to do so because that's part of it. But that's not just it. In the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, when we look at that word shame, it also has this idea of being disappointed. In other words, when we stand for the truth of God's Word... He will never disappoint us. We will never be left empty. We will never be left alone. Because God will never disappoint His people. He will not leave you ashamed and disappointed. And even as I mentioned with the introduction, with that, with that um, ex- uh, illustration of Luther, how did, he, how did he respond? Here I stand. Where does he stand? Rooted on and in the Word of God. And with what did he respond? Neither by popes nor councils, not by his own wisdom, but by the Holy Scriptures. Standing firm, responding with the Word of God. I wonder if that's how we respond when we're attacked, particularly for righteousness' sake. Often the words of our mouth, the words in our mouth are are those that we want to say, right? Right? I mean, we, we conjure up all these things in our mind. This is, what, this is what I'd say to them. I'd really get them. Really get them. We want to respond with anger, with frustration, with self-protection, or maybe self-promotion. Is how we often want to respond. We want to trust in our own wisdom. We want to speak in a way that destroys others and builds up ourselves to make ourselves look good in front of others. I mean, if we... If we want to see this put on full display, just read your social media. You can see it everywhere there. Even among Christians. Dare I say, especially among Christians. And we wonder. And the world is left to wonder. Do Christians even love one another, much less their enemies? Because they sure don't act like it. Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Will people know that we are his disciples by the way that we love one another, by the way that we respond, the way that we speak to one another? What would the world think? And then just by way of warning as well, you put yourself out there and reading all that just unrestricted There's a whole host of professing Christians who call for all sorts of things. We're not careful. We don't compare that to the Word of God. If we don't take that and be Bereans and say, what does the Word of God think? We could be led astray. There's a whole host of professing Christians who call, call for us, for example, to love our neighbors. And you say, well, Chris, we are called to love our neighbors. You are absolutely right. We are. We are called to love our neighbors in the way that God calls us to love our neighbors, defined by Him, in accord with His law, in accord with His righteousness. You see, when we 
seek to define God's love or our love for others differently than how God defines it, then we actually end up being disobedient to his word. And we neither love God nor his neighbor. We don't get to define how we love our neighbor. God defines that for us according to his truth, according to his law. When our hope is placed in our own wisdom or in the world's wisdom, rather than in God's truth, what happens is that we end up ignoring God's truth. And we end up despising our brothers and our sisters while, quote-unquote, loving the world in a way that's not a biblical love. So we, we excuse our own sin out of self-righteousness, believing that we know better than God. And then we excuse others' sins out of a self-righteousness, believing that we're somehow more holy than God. And can, def- and can define the best way to love our neighbor and what it is that our neighbor needs. So we can say that we're seeking to love God and our neighbor, but if either of those are done in a way not prescribed by the word of God, then we're not only breaking one, we're actually breaking both, and we accomplish neither. With what and How? Do we respond to the world around us with our own wisdom? Or with the word of God? Because that's where our hope is found. And that's where the world's hope would be found. Is in the word of God. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 44. I will keep your law continually. Forever and ever I shall shall walk in a wide place. For I have sought your precepts. We saw earlier that God's, God's love for people is demonstrated. It's not merely voiced. It's not merely sentimental. But it's demonstrated. God demonstrates His love for us. So when we think about our own love, couldn't we ask the same thing? I, uh, this may be a very simple illustration. I've shared it, I think, years ago. But many, many years ago, I... I was listening to a man who was talking about marriage. I think it was a marriage conference or something like that. And, and um, he said he just could not understand <clears throat> why his wife did not understand how much he loved her. Because after all, he told her all the time. I love you, honey. I love you, honey. I love you, honey. Why didn't she get it? Why didn't she get it? Until one morning... He was walking out the door on his way to work and he passed by an overflowing trash can next to the door. And on his way by, he says, I love you, honey. To which she then replied somewhat, you know, somewhat um, defeatedly. I love you too, honey. And I know that you love me. But could you please take out the trash when you go? What's she saying? I know you love me, but could you demonstrate it for me by something really simple? Could you demonstrate it for me? See, God demonstrates His love for us 
And what we see here in this psalm is that our love for God is also demonstrated. Not in the same way. Not in the same way. Not mere sentiment. But what does he say? The psalmist says, I will keep your law. How is our love demonstrated? I love this part. It was, it was so helpful for me this past week as I thought about this, as I prayed about this. It's a good and helpful shift in our thinking that oftentimes needs to be shifted. We too often think that our obedience earns God's love or earns God's favor. May it never be. That's a different gospel. That's not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ found in the Scriptures. God's love is demonstrated to us, not because we earn it, not because we deserve it, but His love is demonstrated to us by grace, by His sovereign choice to place His favor on us. So our obedience doesn't earn anything. And so to put it this way, our obedience doesn't affect God's love for us, but it does demonstrate our love for Him. Do you see the difference? Does God love you? Yes, He does. He demonstrated it. Do you love God? Are you demonstrating it? By obedience to His Word. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus doesn't say in John 14, I will love you... <coughs> I will love you if you keep my commandments. That's not what he says, is it? But what he does say is, and and I think that's somehow we think about it. I think that's somehow how we process it. But what he does say is, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Your obedience is a demonstration of your love for him and not a prerequisite for his love for you. Let me say that again. It's important. Your obedience is a demonstration of your love for Him and not a prerequisite for His love for you. And praise God for that truth. I think sometimes in our walk of faith, we struggle not only with the question, does does God love me? Even though, goodness gracious, it's been demonstrated. It's been demonstrated. But we do struggle with the question sometimes, do I love God? Do you ever struggle with that? Do you ever even ask yourself that question? I think sometimes we try to answer that by considering our feelings toward Him. How do I feel about God today? By considering whether or not I have warm fuzzies about Him. And and I'm not suggesting that there shouldn't be an affection for God. There should be. There should be an affection for God and the things of God. And there are times when we respond even emotionally. That we respond to His truth with thankfulness, with gratefulness. We respond to that truth with, with joy. We respond to that truth with wonder. And our emotions are moved by the depth and the breadth of God's love for His people. That's appropriate. 
But love for God is demonstrated not by an emotive falling in love with him, but by a bowing the knee to him. That's how we demonstrate our love for God. Not by falling in love with him, but by bowing the knee to him. So now we ask ourselves the question, do you love God? And, and when we do bow the knee, when we do walk in obedience, that's where we walk in wide places, as the psalmist says. I love the way he says that. Because those wide places, Jesus speaks of the narrow gate, but once you're in, it's a wide place. Once you're in, in Him. It's a wide place. And what's a wide place mean? It's that those are places of true freedom in Christ Jesus. Places of bounty. Places of, of blessedness. Places, yes, even of delight. Delight in God's law. So there's an emotive word, isn't there? Delight. And where's that delight found? That delight found is in the commandments of God. And the psalmist's response is what? He says, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate <laughs> on your statutes, he says. I'll lift up my hands. I'll respond in praise. Because why? Because my delight is there. So I wonder, do we ever ask ourselves again that question? Is that... Is that us? Is that me? Is that you? Do you delight in God's law? Can we say as the psalmist, as we'll come to several weeks from now in verse 97, where he says, oh, how I love thy law, O God. Can you say that? And I wonder if sometimes we can't and we don't say that because we struggle with the burden of the law. We still view the law as a, condemn, a condemnation for ourselves rather than a delight to us. We still, the, we still see the law as something to be achieved in order to earn God's favor and love. But that's not what the psalmist has said. It's not what he's saying. So could it be that we do not demonstrate our love for God in obedience and delight in the law because we're actually attempting to use the law to ensure God's delight in us? Let me say that again because I think that's important. Could it be that we don't demonstrate our love for God in obedience and delight in the law because we're attempting to use the law to ensure God's delight in us. We're using the law wrong when we do that. Is God delighted when we obey His law? Yes, He is. But God's delight is not rooted there for you. It's, delight, it's rooted where? In Christ Jesus, who has already, already fulfilled it. Already 100% completely obedient to that law. Where does God's delight for you spring from? It comes from there. It comes from there. I 
And so if we're, if we're using the law, long, the law wrong, if that's the case, there, there won't be lifting of hands, will there, toward his commandments. But instead, there'll be a cowering in front of them. Well, let me do this as I close, because since we began our study in this psalm, as, as Sherry said to the children in the missions moment, we've, we've often noted the letter of the Hebrew alphabet, um, where each line in this particular section starts and what Hebrew alphabetical letter it starts with. And, and maybe even I've mentioned if there's been a significance to that in each of them. But I've not done that here. I don't know if you noticed that. I didn't, I've not done that here yet. I'm now going to. I'll do so here at the end. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, and now Vav. I know it's spelt Wa. Wait, is it up there? Yeah, right there. I know it's spelt wa, but it's actually pronounced vav. And I love vav. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. It's an interesting one. It's an interesting <coughs> letter. It's a simple little character in the Hebrew alphabet. But it holds great importance in one's translation of a text. And even, I would argue, in one's interpretation of a text. It's often used in such a way that it's called a vav conjunction. Now, every time I hear that word, maybe this will help you remember this. Every time I hear that word conjunction, I think of the old schoolhouse rock Saturday morning cartoons. Anybody else think of those? You older people like me, had a girl, way to go. And some of you younger people, fantastic, I love it. It originally aired from 1973 to 1985. Um, it's come back a few times, even had a direct-to-video um, release in 2009. I bet you didn't know that, but it sure did. But it was an educational cartoon. But anyways, there was a particular song, a teaching tool for grammar, and you'll know it when I say it. Conjunction, junction, what's your? Very good. Hooking up cars and making them function. You remember. Conjunction, junction, how's that function? I like tying up words and phrases and clauses, and it goes on and on and on. Why in the world would I bring that up here? Because that's what the Bob conjunction does in Hebrew literature. It hooks up phrases, hooks up clauses, hooks up thoughts, and it's, it's especially important in Old Testament narrative. But I would make the argument that it also is, the, the author of this psalm actually uses it brilliantly here. Because you see, as a Vav conjunction, it's just simply an and. And. That's what it is. But, e but here, each frame begins with the Vav, connecting each phrase to that which preceded it. And so, if we do it this way, maybe we'll get the point. And let your steadfast love... Come to me and take not the word of truth out of my mouth and I will keep your law and I shall walk in a wide place and I will speak of your testimonies and I will find my delight and I will lift up my hands and I will meditate on your statutes. Uh, it is just rapid fire, almost staccato-like fashion. Because why? Because the psalmist is saying, how do we respond to God's love? How do we respond to God's promises? How do we respond to what God has done for us? And it is, this is his heart. And I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do this. I will do whatever it is, Lord, 
because of your goodness, because of the wonder that you've shown your people, I will do everything you ask. Now that's the heart of one who knows his God, isn't it? This is my response. So brothers and sisters, how do you respond to God's love and favor? How do you respond or how do you respond to God's love and favor and how do you demonstrate your love for the one who gave himself for you? Let me ask it that way. For the one who redeemed you. For the one who's forgiven you of all your unrighteousness. For the one who has forgiven you of all of your disobedience. Not, the question is not how do you earn it? Because you can't. The question is not how do you pay him back for what he's done? Because you can't do that either. The question is simply this, how do you respond to what God has done for you? In Christ Jesus, his life perfectly obeyed the commandments. His life given for you. His blood shed for you. How do you demonstrate your love for him who has demonstrated his love for you first? 1 John chapter 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. And it's almost as if John is writing a commentary on Psalm 119 verses 41 to 48. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Brothers and sisters, how do you respond? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today and thank you for your word and your law. We thank you too for your love that you have demonstrated for sinners like us. Thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.